Our scripture lesson is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. And to the angel of the church of Pergamon write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat foods sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality or sexual harlotry. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the church, and to the angel of the church, Athiatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual harlotry. Behold, I will throw her on to a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works, unless she repents of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, or searches the kidneys and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for John being a faithful messenger. We ask that you would help us to be faithful in listening, that we may love you, that we may do the good works that you reward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I mentioned last time uh, when we looked at the book of Revelation a couple weeks ago uh, that the book of Revelation was about the end of the old era, the Old Testament, the old covenant era, and the beginning of the new covenant in earnest. The book is about, this book of Revelation is about that overlapping 
transitional time when both covenants are active, basically between 30 and 70 A.D. Old Testament history beginning here, uh, the Bible ending here. You have an overlap of about 40 years, 30 to 70 A.D. And this particularly this book is about the latter part of that 40 years. We think it was written about 64, 65 A.D. Which means that it is a primarily a book about a wonderful love story. About a groom come to prepare a bride out of that era to enter into the everlasting kingdom as the bride of the exalted Christ, whose name is Jesus. He first appears in the book as the exalted Jesus of chapter 1, but then we see that he is glorified by the revelation of his bride in chapters 21 and 22. The exalted king needs a wife for his glorification, just as all men need a wife to be glorified. Last time we also looked at the four in the spirit phrases of chapter 1, 4, 17, and 21, and they all show a progression from an exalted but not glorified king in chapter 1 to an exalted king with a beautiful bride, but not the disobedient and rebellious bride of chapter 17. She's the harlot that rides on the beasts of the nations. No, he is glorified with a glorious heavenly uh, come down bride in chapter 21. As part of that glorification, the bride is transformed throughout the book by the groom's loving care. Think of Esther as she was groomed for over a year, two two six-month periods with different perfumes and lotions and potions. She was prepared to be the wife of Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. Or Ruth, think of Ruth, prepared to be the wife of Boaz through her struggles, her losses, her persecutions, and her faithful cleaving to the true God, Yahweh, and his people. She was persecuted when she went out in the fields. The young men would attack her. Of course, Boaz put a stop to that. Now that's the story of Revelation, a glorious bride for the exalted son. That's the theme. We also see this theme expressed in the covenant renewal worship outline that you have in your bulletins, in which we talked about last time. But the result of that covenant renewal worship is that the bride is glorified and beautified, preparing her for presentation to the exalted Savior, especially in the purification and consecration sections, which we're in the consecration section right now, where the Lord is speaking to you. Your sins have been forgiven. You don't need to be sad when you eat the supper because you're forgiven. You're saints in heaven around his table listening to you, him uh, speak to you. And of course, that's where we are today in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, where the Savior confronts and exhorts his bride with the seven messages, the seven letters to the churches. As Jesus walks among the lampstands in chapter 1, he As Peter Leihauer put it, he inspects his churches to determine whether or not they are living up to his standard. We will find that Jesus' words form a future bride by speaking of the future. The messages warn of afflictions to come, holding out promises both for the present and the future. You see, he points out that Jesus wants 
them to recognize their coming sufferings for what they are. The tribulation that brings in a new age of fulfillment. Even in the midst of persecution and tribulation, which John says he is experiencing in chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus is still the priest in the heavenly temple, trimming the lamps and filling them with oil. He is the husband tending to his wife. He is the divine lover, writing love letters to prepare his bride for the future marriage uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. The book of Revelation indicates that Jesus' growth in his humanity and in his glory does not end with his exaltation but when he possesses the fullness of his glory, the bridal city that is the church. Even in this exaltation, he continues to advance from glory to glory. You yourselves this morning are part of that glory. You have Christ in you. Now remember that though each letter is specifically written to a particular locale, they are not private because each of them ends with the phrase, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They were intended to be shared with each other, meaning you as well. This letter is for you. It's not private. And you should learn from the letter as we go through it. Remember, too, that these letters are addressed to the angels, which are the pastors of the churches, and not to the churches themselves. We'll see that, obviously, in the two letters we look at this morning. Jesus is the emperor. Remember Daniel 2? He is the stone, the final kingdom. He is the emperor, the final kingdom, which grows to be a, a, a mountain that covers the earth. Jesus, the emperor, uh, speaks to his provincial representatives, the angels, pastors of the church in each city. Remember also from chapter 1 that the angels are stars. And as they shine, the bride is prepared to become a city of light. And as stars, these pastors also war in the heavenly realms. Just as Joe shines in his faithfulness, so we will shine in our faithfulness as we learn and live and model him. So let's look at the first letter to the church of Pergamum, uh, verses 12 through 17. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And once again we find Jesus introducing himself uh, to the angel, to the pastor of the church, with one of those descriptive phrases used in chapter 1, when we have the picture of the exalted Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 1, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is not a dull ceremonial sword like you find at those Lord of the Ring conventions that they're all carrying around, broadswords and that kind of stuff that wouldn't hurt you unless they beat you with it because they are heavy. Uh, no, this is sharp, meant to cut and kill if need be kind of sword. comes out of his mouth, which corresponds to the word that is like a sharp sword that cuts to the heart and divides between joints and marrow, Hebrews 4.12. That it cuts the joints and marrow means that it is a sacrificial sword as well, which points back to the original Gardenic imagery of the cherubim at the gate, where one would have to pass through uh, that sacrificial fire and sword. Remember, the whole thing was made of fire to get back into the garden. 
The point is that Jesus arrives at this church to cut up the angel, the church, and its members in pieces so that all will be offered up as a fitting sacrifice to the Lord. Remember the ascension offering? The head was cut, uh, the entrails are taken out, the legs are washed, the entrails are washed, and the whole thing's put on the altar. It's cut up into pieces, but put up there to ascend. Oh, the head goes first, and on top of the head, the body goes. That's us. Okay, that's following Christ. And that's what he's offering here. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Having inspected the lamp and the sand, Jesus is aware of the angel's predicament. He dwells as pastor where Satan's throne is, which is answered at the end of the verse in this one-verse chiasm by where Satan dwells. Okay, So where Satan's throne is, is where Satan dwells. Satan dwells where that is, and that's where this pastor dwells. Nonetheless, the inside of this one-verse chiasm tells you that the angel has been faithful, and there are two people faithful. He has been holding fast the name of Jesus, even at the same time that Antipas called the faithful witness, and the word there in Greek is martyr, the faithful martyr, even when he was killed. You have two men being faithful martyrs, faithful witnesses, surrounded by this place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Both the angel and Antipas have been faithful together, not denying Jesus as their Lord, even in a city that shares the same civic space with Satan and his kingdom. Now, why or how is Satan's throne in Pergamum? Well, the text doesn't tell us directly uh, how we know that. Uh, but historically, we know from outside the scriptures that it was the center of the imperial cult uh, where Caesar was worshipped. And we have other clues in the book itself, which states that when the dragon calls the beast out of the sea in chapter 13, that's a sea beast. That's the Gentiles. The sea represents the Gentiles. And when that beast is described, it's described like the Roman beast in Daniel chapter 7. It's the one with the teeth of iron and the claws, and it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a combination of all the other beasts. So it's Rome. So we, we know that uh, Satan dwells there as part of that Roman empire. Remember, too, that we've already seen the name Satan back in chapter 2, verse 9, where the Jews are described how? As the synagogue of Satan. So we now see Satan's power nesting down in two settings, maybe a double witness, in the synagogue and in the emperor's palace, okay? The imperial palace with the same goal, to blaspheme and to wipe out the churches. And here we get a glimpse also of chapter 13, where the sea beast, Rome, and the land beast, the false leadership in Israel, join together, form a covenant against the church. Uh, they already they've killed Antipas, the first martyr in Revelation, whose blood is mingled with that of Jesus. Antipas, whose name means belonging to the Father. The man belonging to the Father, they kill. And he's described by Jesus as his faithful martyr. And that's the very same accolade 
used of Jesus himself back in chapter 1, verse 5, where John describes Jesus as the faithful martyr. Now, what an honor for Antipas to be called that and to be spoken of that manner. And it should be an inspiration to all of you. The nine you want to hear, well done, good and well done, good and faithful servant, but also uh, my faithful martyr, my faithful witness. Verses fourteen to sixteen. Jesus says, "But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat." Uh, food sacrifice to idols and to practice sexual uh, immorality, sexual harlotry. The word is porneia, okay, where we get pornography from. And it has multiple uh, connotations, but here I think it's harlotry. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against with the sword of my mouth. Now this is the first message we've seen where Jesus divides the church into faithful and unfaithful. The message is directed to the angel. I have a few things against you and he expects him to do something about these Balaamites that are in the congregation. Whereas we didn't know the teaching of the Nicolaitans back in chapter 2 verse 6, the structure here makes it clear that the teaching of Balaam is the same as the Nicolaitans. Both words are modified by the word teaching of, or the phrase teaching of, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of Nicolaitans. And notice too that the teaching of the Nicolaitans is also like that of Balaam, which was to put stumbling blocks before the Israelites, eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual harlotry. So now we know what the Nicolaitans taught. Remember the events of Numbers 24, 25, which Abe uh, read some of them. Israel had had great success when it came out of Egypt near the end. They killed the king of Arad. They killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. This alarmed Balak, who was the Midianite king, Moab, and he hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. How did that work out? Didn't. If you remember, because Yahweh turned all his speech into a blessing. When that fails, some of the Midianite women enter the camp and seduce the people to play the harlot. They offer sacrifices to false gods. They celebrate a sacrificial feast and fornicate. At this point, Yahweh has had enough of uh, this internal perversion and a plague breaks out. That's what Abe read only arrested when Phineas impales a fornicating man and woman in their tent. Now later on, several chapters later, chapter 31, we find out that uh, Balaam was behind this effort. He's the one that encouraged them to do this, to send these women in and try to pervert Israel. Now, the typology in this letter is pretty clear. Jesus wants the angel of the church to do in Pergamon what Phineas did in the Israelite camp. The angel has been faithful. He has held fast to the name of Jesus, but he has allowed false teaching and false practice to take hold amongst his congregation. 
Now Jesus wants the pastor to take that word and cut up these enemies in the camp. He wants him to repent of standing to the side, failing to throw them out of the church, failing to war against them with the sword of the word. Jesus wants the angel to cut them up with his sword, or else Jesus himself will come and do the job with the same sword. Verse 60, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What are the sins the angel was supposed to expunge and that you are to stay away from? Obviously, this is not good for their church. It's not good for this church. Well, we know from Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, part of which was read this morning also, that it's not sinful to eat meat sacrificed to idols if it's sold out in the marketplace. All right? Uh, the meat is approved by Paul and PETA, the earliest chapters of PETA, people eating tasty animals. You can eat it unless you have a Gentile brother who is offended by you eating that meat because he thinks about it was offered to idols and that's all he can think about. And he sees you eating it and he thinks you're tarnished by that. Paul says... Uh, Better become a vegetarian than to lose a brother. The sin here is participating in the sacrificial rite in a pagan temple. You can't do that. Paul says you can't eat at the demonic table of idolatrous civic feast and the table of the Lord. They are mutually exclusive. You can't say, I love Jesus, and then go out and eat at the table of demons. What is the sin of sexual immorality? Porneia. Well, the um, actual sexual sin fits the reference in Numbers 25, correct? As does harlotry. They played the harlot. But harlotry is also used throughout the prophets in reference to political infidelity, political idolatry, where Israel uh, uh, trusts in foreign, foreign alliances. You often hear about them. A king comes up against Israel or Judah and rather crying out to Yahweh, they go and they take all the money and the gold out of the temple and they give it to another Gentile king and ask him to come beat up the guy that's uh, uh, coming at their land. Okay, And Yahweh is not real happy with that. Okay, It's where they trust in foreign alliances instead of Yahweh. The term can also refer to the unfaithfulness of God's people in the worship of their God, including our own churches today. So it can be sexual harlotry. It can be political infidelity, and it can also be false worship. Worshiping false god in the church today. The god of wokeness, the god of transgenderism, the god of homosexuality, the god of whatever I want to do for sex is okay. That god, okay, or all the others that we have out there. Uh, the church needs to repent of those things and is talking. That's spiritual adultery there. Verse 17, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So after giving them the double witness that the Spirit is speaking as well as Jesus, Jesus is speaking this letter, but he's doing it through his Spirit, Jesus gives them a promise to the one who overcomes or conquers in this battle of martyrdom and faithfulness uh, for his name. He will give the conqueror some hidden manna and 
a white stone with a name on it, only known to Jesus and the recipient, the saint, the overcomer. So what is the hidden manna? Well, think about it. Where was manna hidden where men and women could not look on it? That's right. Y'all guessed it. In the ark in the tabernacle, right? In the temple. But even, even the priest could not open the ark and see it or look into it. We've all seen a movie. You open that thing up and you're toast, okay? But if you follow Jesus and refuse to eat at the idolaters' feast or participate in their orgies, then in Jesus Christ, you get to come into the very sanctuary of God and feed upon His Son. Jesus, the bread of life. Notice the contrast. If you don't eat with the demons, you don't eat with Satan and involved in their wickedness, you get to come into the very presence, into the very Holy of Holies, and eat of Jesus, the bread of life. What could be clearer? In other words, those who refuse fellowship to, uh, those who refuse to fellowship with Satan, where he dwells, where his throne is, are guaranteed a place at the heavenly and priestly feast where the Lord's throne is, where he dwells. Remember, in the Holy of Holies is where the feet of God is. That's the seat of his throne. That's the reward for faithfulness here. What is the white stone and new name? Again, think about it. But don't think about it like an American. Don't walk like an Egyptian either. That won't help you. Who else? Where else do people have stones with names on them? Think biblically. That's right. The priest. The high priest has two stones, one on each shoulder, that has... Uh, bears the names of the sons of Jacob. And he has 12 stones on his breast, uh, four rows, three in each row, uh, that bears the 12 tribes. And where does he wear these stones with the names on them? Does he walk around the neighborhood? Does he go down and get you know, a hero for lunch with this on? No. He is in Yahweh's presence in the tabernacle or the priestly grounds or the uh, temple grounds, but particularly in the holy place. Meaning, you too, a faithful conqueror, will have your name carried into the presence of Jesus Christ and you will be remembered by Him even as you, via the stone, are brought into His presence. Your name, a name that only known to you and Jesus put on that, carried in there. Now what about the fact that no one knows the name except the one who receives it? Well, that suggests a true intimacy of lovers. Jesus has a special name for each victor. Each victor shines with his or her own unique luster. That's very encouraging to know at the beginning of your martyrdom, which these saints are in. Okay, it, This is be, about ready to take place, right? We saw in chapter 1, this, things are soon to take place. The time is at hand. Very encouraging to know. It's very encouraging to know that you're held close to the heart of Jesus, your high priest. I mean, this is like your own personal Valentine from Jesus, okay? So we just had Valentine's Day. Or, this is nice to know, when you can't be demoted, or, or, or when you can't be promoted, or when you are demoted, or fired, or canceled for being a Christian. And that's happening, right? Uh, we're... Christians aren't out there in the social uh, area. 
You can't talk on X and do those things. You can't speak at work and say, I don't want to work with a homosexual. That's a perversion. I don't want to work with this transgender. It's a perversion. This guy's a lie. He's lying. He says he's a woman, but he's a guy. Okay? You do that, where are you? Within minutes, you're out on the curb. All right? So these are good things for them to know. Moving on, the letter at Thyatira. Um, Verse 18. And the angel of the church of Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, with this introduction to the angel, to the pastor, Jesus is presented red hot, right? From head to foot. Uh, the organ of judgment, the eyes are like flames of fire ready to judge uh, sin and to purify what they see. His feet of burnished bronze shine gloriously, appearing altar-like when somebody bows before him. The altar was red hot too. Having, excuse me, having walked amongst the lampstand of Thyatira, he is ready to make judgment. Okay, just as Yahweh inspected Nadab and Abihu, and fire came out and burned them up. Well. Jesus is getting ready to burn up some in this church. Jesus is pronouncing his judgment against his church as the Son of God. And we'll see that Son of God is language from Psalm 2, which is prevalent later on. Verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus first praises the angel of the church by noting five works. Love, faith, service, patient, endurance, and that the latter works are increasing, that they exceed the first. Meaning, this this guy is making progress. He's not a bad pastor. He's making progress. His heart and his mind are devoted to the Lord. He is trusting Him daily. He gives his life for the saints in Christ's name. And he's enduring well in his tribulation that he finds himself in, girding up his loins and increasing in his devotion to Christ. But... Jesus doesn't waste much time on further accolades. Things are not well in the church, and he speaks directly to the pastor. Verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual harlotry, to eat food sacrificed to idols, to eat in these feasts. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual harlotry. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of, of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the kidneys and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." This pastor tolerated Jezebel. Tolerance means to allow the existence, occurrence, practice of something without interference. He knew it and he didn't stop it. As overseer, the angel has the authority to act and by Jesus' accusations should have been using that authority to root out this woman and her followers, her children. He should have used his authority to root out this intolerable evil, especially since it was coming from within the church, not outside from the synagogue of Satan or hostile Roman rulers. 
His eyes, the pastor's eyes, should have been burning like Jesus' eyes, cleaning out the internal corruption and seduction. The so-called prophetess is countenancing the same sins as in Pergamon, harlotry, uh, and participating in pagan idolatrous worship. She is a seductress who leads the bridal church of Christ away from Christ into adultery with other gods. Her name, of course, is a reference to the wife of Ahab of Israel. He built a temple for Baal, and she instituted Baal worship there, and she even had a band of Baal prophets, Baalistic prophets, I don't know how to say that. She led Israel into open Baalist worship, forsaking Yahweh. Jezebel and the Balaamites of Pergamum are one and the same. Both lead the saints into porneia, spiritual adultery, and to things eat uh, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Uh, this Jezebel in the church has the same agenda as the harlot of Israel. That Israel is Israel on the back of the beast in chapter 17 to lead God's saints into sin and away from. Them. That's what the false leaders of the church of Israel did, the priests. They led Israel away into judgment, and that's what Jezebel is doing here in this church. In verse 21, we see the judgment and patience of Jesus. Patience. He has shown his eyes upon Jezebel, but she turned her gaze away. She will not repent. He gave her time, but she wouldn't repent. His judgment will fit the crime as he throws her upon a bed of sickness, even a deathbed. Just as Jehu, through the first Jezebel, had her thrown out the window from the balcony when he showed up at the city after she tried to seduce him. Remember, she paints her eyes. She's this old woman. And she paints her eyes and goes out there and looks at him longingly and he says, who's with me? And a couple of the... Uh, Guys, camp kids, eunuchs show up, and he says, throw her over. And he throws her over. And they run over her with the wagon and the wheels and the horses and the dogs come and lick her up and eat her up and all that's left are the palms of her hands. Jesus is not a weenie. Jesus is serious. And that's what he wanted this pastor to do, but he said that's what he'll come and do. Uh including that judgment are those who commit adultery with her and her children will also be struck dead. The tribulation that they will endure, the same word is used in Matthew 24 at the end of the age, they will have a tough time. Does this make Jesus a monster, insensitive, impatient, unwoke? Of course not. He is protecting his bride. He is cleansing her of those who seek to seduce his people to Satan and everlasting damnation in the lake of fire that burns uh, forever. And the beasts, both beasts, and he will be thrown in that. In fact, this judgment of Jesus' fiery eyes will bless the church. They will know that Jesus judges and searches the mind and heart to know if one loves him with all their heart, mind, and soul, and body. And when he finds faithfulness, he is not loath to reward it. He saved the church and you to walk in imitation of his good works with all your heart and mind, with all your kidneys, with all the interior and the exterior. I'll mention that in a minute. Verse 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, 
who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Jesus is coming soon. That's what the whole book is about. It's not future to us. Now, not all in the church have joined with the intolerance of the angel pastor. Some have resisted Jezebel's teaching and practice and her delving into the deep things of Satan, which is probably a reference uh, to Ahab's Jezebel, whom Jehu called a sorceress back in 2 Kings chapter 9. It's likely that this church's Jezebel is a sorceress as well, inspired by Satan, a prophetess who explores the depths of Satan. To those who have resisted, not followed, uh, Jesus lays no other burden upon them, a reference to and a support of the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, where they uh, sought to lay, quote, no greater burden, quote, upon the churches than the four listed things that they gave, okay, four listed requirements, two of which were forbidding the eating of things sacrificed to idols and fornication, two of the four, the things we see here. So both the Balaamites and the Jezebelians were rebels in the church. They knew about this, but they purposely worked against the apostolic fathers who were not only bringing peace between Jew and Gentile in Acts 15, but giving stipulations to keep the church from falling into idolatry as well. Jesus' last commendation to these faithful ones is to hold fast like a sturdy rope holding the sails in a storm until he comes, which we know is soon from chapter 1. Verses 26 and on. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The victors in this battle with Jezebel and her followers who hold fast the profession of Jesus are promised kingly authority that both shepherds the surrounding nations into faithfulness, as well as breaking the rebellious ones into uh, easily broken shards. Nations are like pottery, and the victorious saints break rebellion nations in pieces in order to shepherd them. And that's what the Son of Yahweh does in Psalm 2. In fact, victors smash nations in the same way that they receive the kingdom, by faithful suffering discipleship, by following the Lamb to the cross, grave, and glory. That's how Jesus destroyed Rome, by going to the throne, or by going to the cross, and by, by being resurrected, being glorified by His Father. Suffering martyrdom, persevering in Jesus, His witnesses dash the world to bits so that the Lord can form a new world from its shards. The language of Psalm 2 is obviously readily apparent here as Jesus has received authority and a kingdom and power from his Father. Uh, so those who will fast him are granted the same under him. But we see that's not the only gift to those who conquer. He gives himself the morning star. Jesus is the morning star, we're told later on in chapter 22. In receiving Jesus the star, the conquerors are raised to shine like kings in the firmament. 
rulers alongside Jesus. They're like those little bears that have lights in their stomachs. They shine. They have the the living star within them, the morning star, and they, they rule right there with him. Now, in closing, I pointed out in my last sermon that each of these letters to the churches uh, focuses on a particular history, particular period in the history of Israel. Because the church is the body of Jesus, Israel's history is also imprinted on the experience of the churches. As the Old Covenant church is the body of Christ, so is the early church. Remember in Judah, or not Judah, in the book of Jude, when the devil argues with Gabriel about the body of Moses, he's not arguing for his physical body. Satan's wanting permission to attack the Jews. The whole body came out of there. That's the body of Moses. Remember, because they were all baptized in the Red Sea. They became his body. They were baptized in Moses. You are the body of Christ. You've been baptized into Christ. So how do we see these periods in these messages? Uh, well, we see them in the literary clues. In Pergamum, it's obviously the wilderness period when Israel came out of Egypt because they're in danger from Balak and Balaam, but saved through the type of Christ Phineas. The victors are granted to, to eat hidden manna, or granted hidden manna, okay, uh, which was rained down upon them during that whole wilderness period, as well as white stones, that unite the groom and the bride with the name only known between them. And you have plenty of stones in that picture. Uh, in Thyatira, it's the kingly period uh, of Israel and Judah with Jezebel seeking to destroy God's covenantal people in the northern kingdom back then. But those who overcome her here are gifted a David-like kingdom role that shepherds the nations into the Great Commission. So as you're reading for your homework for next time I preach, try to think what the next history or period is from Israel. With these two letters then, we see Jesus sternly rebuking his church. He has a sword in his mouth to wage war on some of those in the church, and he has eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, that search both the mind and the heart, or more literally, as I've said, the kidneys and the heart, the insides. One translation says the entrails, okay? But the text says he also judges according to your works. So why does he do an internal inspection if he plans to judge external behavior? Well, because in God's world and in his word, works are never simply external bodily behaviors. You just don't go through the ropes. They are never simply conditioned responses. Rather, Scripture treats motivation, goals, inclinations, desires, emotions as facets of your works, as part of your works. What Jesus judges is the whole package, the whole you, the external actions and the movements of the heart. That's why kids, when your parents tell you to put, when they discipline you and tell you to obey, they want you to put on a smile as well. They want to see a right attitude. They don't only want to see the outward obedience, they want to see a right attitude. Because without that right attitude, you're in disobedience to Jesus. You're not honoring your mother and father if you don't change your attitude. And with that right attitude, do what God says to do outwardly and externally. Or for you husbands who just say, honey, I love you. 
but don't have a right attitude when you say that. Your wife looks, sees right through that, right? In other words, we too are to remember from these two churches that godly and acceptable works involve the whole body, heart, kidneys, and livers, as well as the hands and feet and tongues. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that from it we learn to love you. We learn to love you with our heart, mind, and souls. Help us remember that Jesus has eyes of fire and that we war against the wicked. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are doing so in your church even today. We ask that you would destroy the wicked within your church and raise up those who are faithful, who are holding fast in practice, in works, growing in works. And we pray that we may be that kind of people and not be judged. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.